Amen. And thanks for bearing with us there. We wanted to keep you updated as much as possible. And if you ever have questions about this, you can certainly connect with Rick. Uh, just give a little, uh, this is Rick Ebeling, and uh, he is directing or kind of uh, spearheading the building project, and uh, we're grateful for him. Um, any of our board members as well, um, they've got insight, uh, or you can talk with some of the staff and uh, we would love to have a conversation um, how we can get to the finish line. And so that's going to be an exciting uh, next month uh, as we continue to get information. And so we wanted you to be prepared. Amen. Well, thanks again for being here today. Uh, we are so thankful for you. And uh, we're grateful uh, for what God is doing here at the Gateway Church. And you're a big part of that. I am also just grateful for the privilege to be able to study and to serve God's Word week in and week out. Every week, it blesses me in my study, and then to be able to come and to share, and uh, it's a real privilege. And we've been tracking through the Gospel of John, as you know, and we've been tracking one chapter per week, which I know is an aggressive schedule, and we're skipping a lot of material, but our encouragement, and will continue to be, is to do some pre-study, read it before you get to church, ask the Lord to reveal some things to you, let's study it together on Sundays, and then even after Sunday, they take it away and say, uh, to do some post-study and say, all right, Lord, what have you been speaking? How can, this, uh, how can we put some of these things into action? With that, I want you to turn to John chapter 5 and just remind you, as in last week in chapter 4, we uh, talked about the woman at the well. After uh, Jesus ministered to this woman in uh, John 4, 43, uh, he stayed in Samaria for two days. And then after he stayed there for a couple days, he moved on to Galilee where he healed a boy who was uh, dead or almost dead on de death's door. Uh, and it's interesting, he healed him from a distance. He, his word was spoken and uh, that he was not in the same area and the boy was healed and it's a great story. But when we move into chapter 5, it starts chapter 5 by saying sometime later. We don't know if that was a week later or a month or maybe several months went by that Jesus was staying in Galilee. Uh, but at this point, he's moving again, and John is chronicling this, and he's saying that he's heading, to, heading up to a festival to, in Jerusalem. It says he went up to Jerusalem. And you think, if you know your maps, if you open up to the back of your Bible, you've got some maps, you're thinking, wait, wait, he's going down to Jerusalem. What is it? Well, it's an elevation uh, statement. He's, moving, he's going up to Jerusalem, which is more in the mountainous area, and Jesus heals a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Incredible story. After 38 years, a man that was paralyzed, uh, Jesus then, in verse 8, he says, pick up your mat and walk. It's incredible. And people around are just amazed by what Jesus just did. Everyone was amazed except the Pharisees. Let me just pause for a second. Sometimes there's a principle that we can see in Scripture in this way. And the principle is that when God is moving, how many know the enemy attacks? 
right? He doesn't like it when, when God is moving and changing and, and shaping hearts and transforming lives. And this is what was happening here with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they are irritated by Jesus' popularity and his preaching of repentance. And then he heals a man, says, pick up your mat and go. And the, the Jewish leaders, they see the results They see the man carrying his mat, they see that he's been healed, and instead of rejoicing, they start to bicker. Let's just look at it real quick. In verses 8, 9, and 10, they complain that that Jesus has just healed on the Sabbath, and we'll explain that momentarily. It says, then Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. At At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which he, this took place was on the Sabbath. So, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Forget it that this guy just had been healed, had been paralyzed for 38 years. He's carrying his mat, whatever that looks like, right? And they're, they're saying, Why are you carrying your mat? I mean, like, I mean how ridiculous is this, right? And what I just want to say, Jesus, he was completely sinless. He didn't break the law. He did break some of, man, some of the man-made laws that were brought in addition to the, to the law. But, uh, but what we see here, as a result of this healing, and there's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. This is the story from John's account where things start to shift for Jesus. And the idea of Jesus working on the Sabbath or healing on the Sabbath, it, it was, it's not an issue that was going to go away. Let's look at verse 16. It says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. This is the shift. This is where we see that, that people are like, okay, what's going on here? We'll see that as we continue in John chapter 7. Verse 23 and 24, it says this, Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of the Moses will not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's uh, whole body on the Sabbath? And then Jesus says at that point, he says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. In chapter 9, a little later, we're going to see the idea of the, uh, Jesus takes the mud and puts it on the guy's eyes and, uh, and does a miracle there. And it says, now, uh, now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. You're thinking, okay, what's the big deal, right? Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I wash and now I see. And some of the Pharisees, same story, same idea, they don't say, wow, how did that happen? Praise God. They say this, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was, became a big deal. And as Jesus begins to defend his actions of working on the Sabbath, he doesn't only do that, he takes it even a step further. Let's go back to John chapter 5. In, uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus, so they're concerned, the Jewish, they begin to persecute him. Verse 17 says this, In his defense, 
Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work, and to this very day, and I am too working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Him. Are you serious? Not, all, not only uh, was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So at this point, Jesus takes it even a step further, and by His statement, uh, saying, okay, God does not rest, and neither am I going to rest. And by the way, God made a pattern of rest for humans. But how many know Jesus, God, he never sleeps, he never slumbers. He's always at work on our behalf. And so that's what he's identifying here. He's saying he's equal with God. And again, this is a turning point, and they want to kill him. They want to murder him because of this. This is not the last time we see this. In uh, chapter 8, the titles of those sections is the dispute over Jesus' testimony, the dispute over who Jesus is, uh, and then uh, Jesus' claims about himself. In chapter 10, there's a conflict over Jesus' claims again. And so we're going to see what happens here uh, as Jesus continues to, uh, to kind of make his point or make his statement uh, loud and clear. Uh, turn with me real quick to John chapter 19. I think this is interesting. This is close to the time that Jesus is put on the cross. He's being sentenced to be crucified. And look what the, the, what the topic at hand is again. What we're going to see, it says the Jewish leaders, uh, John 19, verse 7, says the Jewish leaders, they insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Why? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus, at this point, is laying out for us. He's saying, I am God. I am the Son of God. And it ultimately resulted in his crucifixion. But it all started back in John chapter 5, and where he's saying, indirectly, I am God. Remember last week, he says directly to the woman, yes, I am God, or I am the one, I am the Messiah, and, uh, and that was revolutionary. He says it to the least of these, but now he's saying it to the masses. And for the next 28 verses, Jesus speaks up in John chapter 5, a great discourse on his identity. Jesus speaks out, and he, it's almost like Jesus is in a courtroom, and, uh, and someone has asked him, now what is your defense? You have said this, and then Jesus, he never corrects the Jewish leaders uh, or the angry, murderous accusations. He would have had an opportunity. Oh, you thought I was saying that I was God. No, I'm not God. He had the opportunity to do that, but he never does that. Instead, he turns up the heat. He turns up the volume on his claim of who he is. And over these verses, we're going to see that he makes three powerful statements about himself. And then he brings in some references, some witnesses that give proof to who he is. And what we're about to read, what we're about to study here together is absolutely central to our Christianity. This is, cannot be understated. The reason John was writing the book of uh, John was so that we would know who the Messiah was. And his first claim that Jesus made in this section is that he was equal with God. All right, let's look at it. Verse, uh, verse 17. All right, it says, In his defense, Jesus said to him, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. 
That is a bold statement. Relying back to saying, okay, I am equal with God. Verse 19 says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son, the son also does. Let me pause there. This idea of a son doing what the father does in that culture. Uh, if your dad was a bricklayer, most likely you were going to be a bricklayer. If your dad was in construction, you're going to be in construction. For Jesus, his earthly father, Joseph, right, was a carpenter, but he's not, that wasn't his real father, right? And so what is it Jesus He's saying right here, my father is at work, and I will only do, the, the father does what the son does. I love that. For Then verse 20, for the father loves the son. I love the intimacy, the brotherly love there, and shows him all that he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than, th- than these, so that you will be Amazed. He's kind of giving a foreshadow of, of Lazarus and the resurrection. Uh, he's delighting in a relationship here. They're working together, the Father and the Son. And he's saying, ultimately, he's saying, I am equal with God. And the, they understood it as that. And he did not rebut that, say, oh, let me back up. Let me rephrase that. Oh, you got it wrong. No, he even moves forward. And then he claims, number two, Jesus claims to be the giver of life. Let's look at it. Verse 21. Verse 21 says this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son, that's me, right? That's Jesus talking, gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He says, I am the giver of life. And this is not physical life only, the bios. This is Zoe life. This is spiritual life. It's the same life in John chapter 10, verse 10, that when Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, that Zoe life, and have it to the full, right? That's the same life that we're talking about. He continues in verse 24. It says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Verse 26, it continues. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And then starting in verse 28, he goes on. He says, Do not be amazed at this. For a time will come when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. He's talking about life here. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Turn with me to John chapter 11 uh, real quick. I want to look at something uh, here momentarily. John chapter 11. This is... Uh, an interesting section where Jesus is comforting the sisters of Lazarus and he talks to Martha first and he talks about life and then he uh, in verses 38 through 44 uh, he ultimately um, then kind of addresses with uh, Lazarus but let's look at the first indication where he's talking about life to Martha verse 25 says Jesus said to her he said again I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
I think it's a great question for us. Do you believe that Jesus is the giver of life? One more verse in the Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus is talking about being alive in Christ. I love this. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That describes every single one of us. We deserve death, destruction. We do not deserve anything beyond that. But verse 4 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, he made us alive. He's the giver of life, right? He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. The power of this idea that Jesus is the giver of life is so important. Has the Son made you alive? Have you been born again? And the question is the same question that Nicodemus asked. And really there are two choices. Either you're lost or you're found. Either you're an unbeliever or you're a believer. Either you're on the broad road that leads to destruction or you're on the narrow road that leads to Jesus. You're either dead or you are alive spiritually. We are born dead in our transgressions. But Jesus, I love it, made us alive with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. How many are thankful for the living water, the living truth? Amen. The third thing Jesus claims here is that he is the judge. And uh, he's talking about judging the living and the dead, uh, those spiritually alive and those spiritually dead. And the word judgment is used seven times in this discourse. Let's start. Uh, we're back in John chapter 5. Uh, let's look at it together. John chapter 5, verse 22 uh, continues, says this. says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, uh, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Wow. Jesus will judge everything. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Continues on. It says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes... Uh, who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed for over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, again, he's kind of on the witness stand. He's saying, I, this is the truth. Believe me, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear it will live. For the Father has life in him, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And this, this is the key. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. God is not only a God of love and of compassion and just come and give me a big hug, right? He also is a just God. 
In fact, when you think about it, even in our own human heart, which we're created in the image of God, there is a desire for justice, isn't there? And if God were not uh, the judge, he would not be good. There must be judgment for sin. And as Jesus sits on the throne, it's going to be Jesus who judges us. Let's look at it here. We'll continue. Verse 27. And it says, And he has given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. And then he says, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus, his goal, his purpose was to honor the Father. The point here is that Jesus has the power and the authority to judge. Very clearly, Jesus is God. And as God, he will judge the living and the dead. And there's two different judgments. There will be a believer's judgment and a judgment for the dead. And it, it would take a long time to kind of study that or to look at that. Uh, I just want to remind you, for those of you that were with us when we were preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians we talked about standing on the Bema seat, right? And that we will be judged by fire and anything that is not godly will be burned up in our lives and only what remains will kind of move on and so we've got to be careful about that in revelation chapter 19 verse 11 uh, we see jesus as the judge here Uh, i love this it says i saw heaven standing open and there before me uh, was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true that's jesus with justice he judges and he wages war Jesus is a mighty warrior, and he's going to judge, and he's going to wage war. In chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Again, that's Jesus, right? Uh, And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Do you know, my mom used to tell me this growing up, every word that comes out of my mouth, I will stand and I will have to uh, make an account for that. And if it's not covered by the blood of Jesus, I'm in trouble. And so would you, all right? And so, so everything that you had been done will be judged. Then death and Hades will, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. There's a lot here, uh, a lot of questions. Uh, we're not going to study that. But anyone whose name was found not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. Now, the opposite is true. If your name is found in the, li- in the book of life, then you would move in to eternal uh, heaven, into eternal bliss forever and ever. And that is the truth of the gospel. But here we see Jesus making three huge claims. Let's bring this back. He's equal with God. 
He's the giver of life, and he is the judge. And then in John chapter 5, verse 31, we see Jesus say this. It says this. He says, I testify about myself. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. How many know sometimes it's hard to defend yourself, right? Uh, and so if you can imagine Jesus in a court of law, which he wasn't in this state, but he's kind of defending himself as if he were. He's saying, you know, uh, I, may, I feel like uh, I'm in the court of law here. He says, so let me call a few witnesses. How many know a case without a good witness or two will really suffer in the court of law, right? You need someone to say, hey, I saw this, or this is what, what happened. And so the first person he calls is John the Baptist. Let's look at it, verse uh, 32. Verse 32 says, there is another who testifies in my favor. He says, look, there's a guy, he'll, he'll tell you the truth, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Verse 33, I have sent to John or, or you have uh, sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. In other words, they're saying, hey, uh, I'm telling you this, so you'll be saved, verse 34. And he says, look, this is John the Baptist. This was his testimony. And by the way, we talked about it. John the Baptist, he was the man. He was incredible. He was, he was uh, described by Jesus as being one of the greatest men to ever live. And he gave testimony back in John chapter 1, verse 29. He's the one that said, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me who surpasses me because he was before me. And then he goes on, he says, uh, he gives this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man to whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on him will baptize with the Spirit. And then verse 34, this is John's testimony. It says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John the Baptist, unequivocally, I think that's a word. He, yep, that's what I meant. Says, this is the Son of God. And so he calls John the Baptist. The second person he calls, or the second idea, is that he calls on his works as a witness. Let's look at it, verse 36. He says, I have testimony weightier than John. He says, you think John's testimony is good. Well, there's something even greater. And he goes on, he says, for the works or the miracles that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. This is important. The miracles, the signs, the water turned into wine, right? The boy healed, the man healed after 38 years. He only does what the Father does. Jesus. John the Baptist never did any miracles. And by the way, there's no other Savior that can come 
that can claim the miracles or anything even close to what Jesus did. Not Mohammed or Krishna or Buddha or Joseph Smith. And we're going to see throughout the book of John, uh, Jesus will be walking on water. He's going to calm the sea. He's going to feed the 5,000. He's open up the blind man's eyes. He's going to raise Lazarus to, from the dead. And then he, he's going to even raise himself from the dead. No other Savior can claim anything even close. And by the way, the greatest claim or the greatest work or the greatest miracle that Jesus ever has done and is doing is He's saving souls. Salvation, His works testify to who He is. That's so important. And then He calls on his heavenly father, his own father, as a witness. Let's look at it. Verse 37, 38. It says, And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. It says, You have never heard his voice or nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. There's kind of three indictments here. There's actually quite a bit in these verses that are interesting, uh, but just for our time's sake, uh, they didn't hear the Father's voice at the baptism uh, that when Jesus or when God spoke, and now God is speaking through the Son. They didn't see his form in John chapter 1, uh, verse 1. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh, right? And then just turn back just for a second. Uh, It says the Word became flesh and dwelled among them. Verse 18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and the only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so they didn't see his form. And they had the word of God. They heard it, but it never went down into their hearts. And that was the important, that was a third indictment that they make. So let's continue. He now calls on Scripture, the word of God. Um, I like this in uh, John chapter 5, verse 39. It says this. It says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So he's saying the Old Testament testifies about Jesus. Certainly the New Testament testifies about Jesus. And again, the religious Jewish leaders would have known the word of God, but only in their heads, not in their hearts. And then Jesus calls his last witness He calls on Moses. Verse 45 says this, But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus is on trial here, so to speak. He's defending his his identity, and he calls on Moses as a witness. You think, for us, we might think, okay, that's interesting. Why Moses? This was the big kaboom for them. 
because they believed in Moses. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, uh, the, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believed, they put their hope in what Moses had written. This would have messed with the minds of the Pharisees. This, they're saying, this, Moses was our guy. That's who we've been looking back to. And Jesus, he says, no, Moses wrote about me and you missed it. I was the rock when the water came out. I was the bread, the manna from heaven. Jesus, these are the types of Christ. And there's, there's a huge study on the types of Christ. Let me just give you a few more. With Isaac, Jesus was the ram in the thicket that saved Isaac's life. Jesus was the fire by night, the cloud by day. He was the high priest in Leviticus. He was the rock in Numbers. He was the lawgiver in Deuteronomy. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Jewish people, they missed it. And so Jesus is saying, look, Moses wrote about me. And if you didn't believe in him, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me. And then I, I just can imagine this dramatic pause saying, look, this is my witness, John the Baptist, my works, the miracles, the Father himself, Scripture, even Moses testify. I rest my case. I am God. I am the Messiah. That's what Jesus, that's what John chapter 5 is all about. For me, there's two big takeaways. The first is this. Can we trust Jesus' claims? I've got a little, little card that we give out that uh, Pastor Pete and the team are going to get to every single one of you here quickly. Or not so quickly. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I want to give one of these to every single person. This is something we talk about in Get Connected. Uh, in uh, our week two, I think it's where we talk about who Jesus is and his claims to be God. Um, I mentioned it briefly last week, the whole uh, C.S. Lewis argument, liar, lunatic, and Lord. And I want to just pass this. Get every, every single person needs to get one of these in your hand. I want, want you to look at it. I'm not sure. Did we get that on the screen? I'm not sure I asked you to. Is the next slide, does it have a, a description? No? Okay. So you're just going to have it in front of you. All right. So what, what this is, let me try to explain it while it's being passed out. Either Jesus was a liar, uh, with he said that he was a son of God, and he wasn't, all right? Or he was a lunatic, he thought he was, but he wasn't, all right? Or Jesus is who he said he was. And I love how the argument goes. Can I see that, Jess? Um, if he was a liar, he knew his claims were false. He made a deliberate misrepresentation. That means he's a liar. He's a hypocrite. He's a demon. And he's a fool for dying for it. So that's how that argument goes. But if his claim was false, that he also, that he was a son of God, and he, and he didn't know it, he was sincerely deluded, he would be a lunatic, or his claims are true, right? On the far right hand side, that he is the Lord. And if then there are two alternatives. Number one, you can either accept it or you can reject it. Now, we give this to you for a, a reason, for two reasons. Number one, this argument has brought a whole lot of people to the Lord. 
salvation. And maybe for you this morning, if you've struggled with, okay, is God really God? Is who Jesus said he was, is he really? This is a great logical argument. It's not scripture, but it's great uh, kind of uh, supplementary that kind of helps us bring people to the Lord. And so for you or for those that are close to you, um, this is a great tool. So salvation for you is born again. Are you born again? Have you accepted or are you rejecting that Jesus claims to be God? Can we trust Jesus' claims? That's the big question. The other thing, the other reason, is that this can become a witnessing tool for you, a conversation starter. You can share this truth or, or, or just be curious with your friends that don't know the Lord. And this is solid biblical truth here. Can the claims of Jesus Can they be trusted? And I would just say loud and clear, you better believe it. You can trust Jesus with his claim that he was God. So that's the first thing. That's the first big takeaway. The second, though, was kind of curious, as I shared with the staff on Tuesday. And we took some time to collaborate around this idea. An idea emerged that I didn't really see coming, but I love it, and I want to kind of end with it. What does your life testimony say about you? So let's flip the tables. We know that Jesus, his claims were good, right? And he, he kind of said, hey, these are the three things. These are three proofs. And these are the witnesses that can testify to who I am. But what if you were on trial? Yikes. What witnesses would you call? What facts could you call upon in your life? See, there's a lot of Christians that are Christian by name only, and there's very little in their life that could really point to the fact that they are Christ followers. What is the commitment level that you have? Your love for Jesus, the way you spend your time and your money, where is your heart? Where you're serving or your devotion. Are you honest at work? Do you cheat on a test? Do you tell dirty jokes or listen and laugh? Is your mouth full of hatred or anger or curse words? Is there enough to convict you of your claims to be a Christian? to be a Christ follower if you were on trial? It's a challenging question. Our staff, we talked about it and said, boy, that really challenges. For us on the staff, we're saying outside of these four walls, outside of my office, outside, would there be enough to convict us, to convict me of being a Christ follower? And with that, I want to just close I want to pray, kind of set our hearts before the Lord. And I want to challenge us here momentarily. Lord, I just pray that you just speak very clearly in these next few moments. Challenge us. Lord, I pray that there will be people that will find you. And God, I pray that we will be challenged to live for you unashamed. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. With your head bowed and eyes closed this morning, I'm just curious if there's anyone here this morning, first of all, as Jesus kind of lays out his testimony of who he is, how many here would say, Pastor Ben, I believe in Jesus' testimony and I have accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. I want you just to raise your hand right where you are. If you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. Yeah. Yep. Lots of hands. Sure. All right. You can put your hands down. There may be some, and I didn't catch it all, but it, that didn't raise your hand, or maybe you raised your hand, but you're not for sure. This morning, we want to offer you a free gift of salvation that Jesus, he can come in, he can take our sin away. He wants to clean us up. If you're here this morning, you need salvation. You need that gift of salvation. I want you just to raise your hand. Who in first service would surrender, say, yep, I need to get my life right with the Lord. Anyone at all? Okay. All right, I don't see any hands. All right, let me get your eyes on me just for one last second, and then I know our time has expired. This morning, I, my heart for you, my heart even for me, is to walk out today with a real sense of what is my life displaying to others. What does your life look like outside of this room? outside of the sanctuary? Is your life consistent with what God's word says? Or are there areas that if you were called and were on trial that would cause serious question to are you really, truly a Christ follower? And I'm just going to say this boldly, that if you have areas in your life that are inconsistent to what the Lord would have for us. This is for you and for me. We better get a grip on that and understand. And we better make some strides to change that. We are called to be salt and light. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. That I want my light to shine bright. That would be my testimony. Lord, help me. I don't do it right all the time. But with God's help, each of us can take our light and we can be a testimony, testify to who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for every person here. God, that you would challenge us to carry your torch, your message, that our lives would represent you. And God, I am confident that there are those, even now, as I share that truth or that idea, they get a little squirmish inside. There's a little darkness in our lives. God, I pray that we would bring light to those areas of darkness. And God, that we would flush those out and that our lives at work, in our lives, in our family, our lives in our neighborhood, our lives when no one is looking, God, would glorify you 
that the light of Jesus inside of us would shine and shine bright. God, I pray it for your glory, for your honor, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand, let's turn, let's greet one another. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Go be the light that Jesus wants you to be. In Jesus' name, amen.